Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. All right, good morning, everyone. I um, forgive me. I'm a little like extra emotional this morning. The uh, the, la- the 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 goodbye, farewell, the uh, the last psalm song. Uh, I felt my bottom lip trying to quiver. Uh, I, I was I was yeah I was in it. I almost turned my mic on. I almost joined worship and started singing, but I know my singing voice is terrible. And so I didn't, but nonetheless, it, uh, it's been a great time so far. So good morning, everybody. My name is Andy. Um, and so let, let's jump right into it, okay? So Summer of the Psalms, we've been in this for a couple weeks now, and the whole point of spending so much time in this is so that we, as a body, would immerse ourselves <clears throat> in the Psalter with two goals in mind. Number one, that the Psalms would teach us how to talk to God. And number two, the Psalms would teach us how to embrace every single emotion that we experience in this life. Yes. Pastor Timmy, Tim Keller said, we should not just simply read the Psalms, but we should immerse ourselves in them so that, we, so that they are profoundly shaped how we relate. And so we've been saying this over and over every single Sunday for the purpose of knowing that language helps create culture. And so I'm saying it, you've heard it before, even the worship team are using the same terminology, immerse, soak, sit in, all those things, because it is something we're trying to drive home as a body. And also, just recently, Chad Bird uh, tweeted this out. He has said, Jesus himself quoted the Psalms when he was being crucified. No other book was on the lips of Jesus as he was about to die. So as we've learned together for these past few weeks, the Psalms shatter our ideas on, one, how to pray to God, and two, what we can pray about to God. And it's especially true for the Psalms, the Psalm of Lament. So underneath it all, and as we'll see again today, the Psalms are an emotional plea that aligns our broken reality to our hope in God's promises. Today's psalm of lament is no different. It will seem to be as if the psalmist is speaking to God disrespectful, that he's invasive and demanding. It will be raw and uneven. And if you listen closely, this lament is filled with a faith that simply takes God at his word. So let me give you an example. If you have a young child, if you have a niece or a nephew, if you just even remember your childhood, um, kids are really good at lamenting. <laughs> and some immature adults, I should, I should add that in there. But let me give you the most common example. Mom, <clears throat> I should do a kid voice, but I, mom, you said you were going to buy me this game. And you said you were going to buy it for me this week. Why haven't you? 
I want it. I need it. See, this kid brings together the hope of a promise, what his mom said, with the reality of why haven't you? So laments are similar in that it's less about complaining, but instead of offering a passion-filled, reason-based argument to God based on, our, based on our faith. Paul E. Miller uh, says this in his uh, A Praying Life book. It says, for the most part, laments are not prayers of surrender, grieving what cannot be changed, but a call to arms, a call to action. He also states that when you lament, you simultaneously live in the past, present, and future. A lament connects God's past promise with your present chaos while hoping for a better future. So today, together, We'll look at Psalm 143. But before we do, I want to give you guys a real important piece of context, the background of, of Psalm 143, just so you have a better understanding of, of what it's talking about, where David is in this psalm. So some argue that this psalm is the result of David being chased um, by his son Absalom, or that it's similar to a previous psalm, Psalm 142, where David is hiding in a cave but in reality, regardless of whatever the situation is, the language is general enough that we, too, can take this and relate and identify with David. So let's jump in. I purposely picked a short psalm, 10 verses, <laughs> to read because personally by verse 3, I, I, I start to lose focus. It gets hard. So follow with me as best as you can. Verse 1. Hear my prayer. Oh, Lord, listen to my plea. Answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Don't put your servant on trial for no one is innocent before you. My enemy has chased me. He has knocked me to the ground. And he forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I'm losing all hope. I'm paralyzed with fear. I remember the days of old and I ponder all your great works and I think about what you have done. I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for rain. Come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. Don't turn away from me or I will die. Let me hear of your unfailing love every morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I run to you to hide me. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. For the glory of your name, O oh Lord, preserve my life. <clears throat> because your faithfulness bring me out of this distress. 
In your unfailing love, silence all my enemies and destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. So this morning, we're going to cover four points based on Psalm 143. And they are these four. Number one, the problem, the pain, the plea, and the promise. So this morning, I have uh, three goals. I actually have one, one personal goal and two hopes. My personal goal is this, that I would stay on track because I only get up here once a year, and I have a lot to say, and I, I uh, want to make sure I fit it all in. My two hopes for Inspire are this. Based on this psalm, that, it, that it's, we will learn what to pray for, and two, why we can trust God for it. So before we jump in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Father, and uh, we just thank you for this time together as we sit under your word, Lord, and we pray that it would do a work in each of us, Father. As I've sat this week and immersed myself in 143 with you, I pray that all that you've uh, spoken to my heart would, would be received by everyone else this morning. So I pray that you would uh, be with me, that you would bless my words, that your spirit would move, Father, and ultimately that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, point number one, the problem. So verse three says, my enemy has chased me. He has knocked me to the ground and forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. So big picture observation is David is aware on what's going on on the outside. He is aware of what is physically happening to him. And if you've ever been on the losing side of a kid ga- kid's game, you can slightly r- relate to what David is, must have been experiencing during this time. So picture this. It's game night and you're playing some two-person game. You're playing checkers. You're playing chess. You're playing... Scrabble, Uno, Speed, Battleship, Egyptian War, whatever it is. But you're playing, and you have a couple turns left. But you know there is no way you're winning. There is no way. The only, thing, the only reason why you're still playing, you're trying to be a good sport, or your pride won't let you give up. The thought of, I might as well just give up now because no, there is no hope is rising inside of you. And if you're competitive, you're starting to get irritated, (laughs) right? This is the situation David finds himself in. But for him, it's a matter of life and death. And all the evidence points to a real, real game over. In this moment, David is being chased by a very real enemy. He is on the run. He's on the defense. He's retreating. A king being chased out of his kingdom. A king with no power. He looks more like a fugitive than a king. And he is clinging on to his life. David said he's been knocked to the ground. He's physically overpowered. He's failing to withstand his enemy's attack. He's vulnerable. 
And lastly, David is being forced to live in the dark. What does that mean? He is hiding in caves to avoid being captured. And not only that, killed. He is living in physical darkness like a dead body laying in a grave. Picture that. This is the problem David is facing, a relentless, evil, unapologetic, external attack that is calling for his life. And if you are like me, I've, and I was asking this question as I was reading this, how in the world can I relate to David's experience of being attacked and being forced to live in darkness? It seems extreme. Seems barbarically outdated. But what if we tried to? How would we answer? What if we just tried to contextualize it in our lives today? What are we running from? What is trying to knock us down? What is threatening our life? Has an opportunity or dream been knocked down? Being laid off from your job because of the economy, not being offered the job you felt qualified for, not getting the promotion you deserve, an outer reach lifestyle because of the endless bills or the constant barrage of emergencies that always set you back, the purchasing of a home anytime soon because of rising costs. Or is it the starting of a family because of the difficulty of getting pregnant? What are you running from? Are you running from a toxic relationship? The divorce of what was once a loving marriage? The ending of what was a promising dating relationship? The heartbreaking separation from a sibling or a good friend because of the endless conflicts and arguments? Or the difficult separation from a parent or a child because you just can't see eye to eye anymore. Lastly, is your life or the life of a loved one being threatened? A once healthy life now debilitated by pain and side effects from the countless numbers of medication that has to be taken. Or a life that has been or will be cut short by disease or some chronic illness. Please catch this. What's important about this point isn't whether we can relate to fighting for our physical lives like David did. But can we point out that external attack, that problem, that trial that we are facing that is, that is affecting us on the inside? And as we all know, with every physical problem, we face a very real pain that we have to deal with. Point number two, the pain. So verses 4 and 6b and 7, you see them on the screen. One big observation I want you guys to key in on. David is aware of what's going on on the inside, the anguish he's experiencing. See, not even David 
a man after God's own heart. Some, you know, some even call him God's favorite. Not even David is immune from the pains of this broken world. Someone who seemingly worships better than us, honors God better than us, represents God better than us. Not even David can escape this. The attack that, God, that David is experiencing on the outside does not compare, though, to what is happening to his soul. It's obvious David is aware of his emotional state. We can, all, we can usually all feel the, the um, effects of a problem, but not quite understand it until we process it. The irritation that builds because you're dealing with something, and it, it's not until... Someone who loves you says, like, what is going on with you? What is wrong with you? Do you need a timeout? Do you need to go breathe? I'm leaving because you are too much right now. Right? We, we, we know. We've, we've felt that before. Slowly builds. And until you call it out, it just continues to grow. So as David processes this, he describes a very distressing state. Of soul misery. David is losing all hope and he's paralyzed by fear. He is spiritually and emotionally crushed from his suffering. His soul is overwhelmed because he has nowhere to escape to. He is physically stuck. He's been cornered. David, a once victorious warrior, frozen with fear. He is in horror and scared for his life. He feels spiritually deserted by God while being completely surrounded by his enemy. See, verse 6b says that David thirsts, that his soul is faint and, and he's close to giving up. If, you, if you've ever done this like I have, like it's like, Driving your car on E, and you know better, but <laughs> you think you know your car, and that that and that that electric that you know saying that digital graph or that red needle is below E, and and it's not a matter; it's just a matter of when, right? You are you are on fumes. That's David in this moment. He's on he's on fumes. His tank is empty. The hope is gone. He's weary and exhausted from all the worry. His soul is dry like a hot desert that doesn't allow anything to grow. And that it burns up every ounce of hope. His soul is dehydrated. And lastly, David says his depression deepens. And feels as if he is near death. His hope is failing. His soul is wasting away. He is falling further and further into this dark hole of despair. If this was a popular TV show, right, this is the point where the doctor rushes in in the nick of time and says, oh, his vital organs are failing. And they shoot him up with something and try to revive him. But for David, from David's perspective, David's eyes, 
nothing's coming. And because of it, his depression gets worse and worse and worse. Ultimately, David feels a life without God leads to death. And that his reality is saying that he can't last much longer. So now as we, you know, continue to sit a little bit longer in David's pain, we can't help but feel helpless for David. Here he is dealing with a threat that is causing an intense, paralyzing, emotional pain. But if we look closely, we notice, notice something interesting. See, it says, I am losing all hope. I'm paralyzed with fear. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for rain. Come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. Do not turn away from me, or I will die. David is demonstrating something for us that, honestly, psychologists have been recommending for years. David is leaning into the harsh emotional pain that he's feeling. See, David is intentionally processing every emotion he is feeling. In today's terms, David is addressing the emotional trauma and ensuring there is no emotional debris left behind. See, emotional trauma is just the result of something disturb of some disturbing experience that leaves you feeling unsafe or helpless. And emotional debris is unprocessed pain. See, both David and psychologists would agree and warn against the danger of suppressing emotions and hindering the outward signs of your inner feelings. We see it in these verses. And so to prove my point a little further, researchers Janesh and Pritchess, I practiced that, by the way, and I still struggled, <laughs> state, studies by Pennebaker and his colleagues demonstrated that individuals who repress their emotions also suppress their body's immunity, making them more vulnerable to a variety of illnesses, ranging from common colds to cancer. Individuals who mask and deny their inward feelings or outwardly vent their emotions characteristically suffer most. As a matter of fact, the amount of relief from pain and discomfort reported by patients with chronic illness has been found to be commensurate with how able they are to deeply and authentically express their emotions and feelings. This is the important part. In conclusion, it is clear that expressing one's true emotions and feelings is crucial to physical health, mental health, and general well-being. While a reliance on concealment or hiding or suppressing gives rise to a barrier to good health. See, just like David, it would do us good to process every corner of our emotional experience. For most of us, though, it's pretty hard. It's difficult. It feels, it feels foreign. But it's not completely our fault. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an out on this. So, so see, for the longest time, society has promoted the, the suppression of emotion. Would you agree? See, Claudia Elzig notes that 
People are expected, for example, not to spend the day crying from sadness at work. Nobody wants to see that. Modern society demands that we suppress emotions. We must put a lid on our feelings so we can perform, whether that be at work or to survive a dysfunctional family. In public spaces, we're expected to act respectfully. Shouting with anger is frowned upon, and most people don't have the tools or confidence to express anger in a different way. So we end up with generations of people that have been conditioned not to process. Because it is more important to look the part than to look how you feel. And so we walk around just shoving it down, shoving it down so that we can continue to climb, continue to look happy within our family or our relationships. For example, a 2019 report showed that only 37% of Gen Zers are likely to process trauma in therapy with millennials, Gen Xers, and baby boomers trailing behind that. So it makes sense, right, that uh, for a lot of us, when we have to choose between processing or avoiding our emotional trauma, the option to avoid usually wins out. And to add on even more, avoidance, especially today, is made easier for us. With the frequent use of substances and alcohol, excessive screen time like endless social media scrolling and binge watching, excessive physical activity like shopping or keeping an overbooked social calendar, overeating, and prescription medications. And to make things worse, what happens is when you have a person that is, one, culturally conditioned not to process his or her emotions, and then two, has unlimited access to things to be able to help them avoid the emotional trauma, what do you end up with? You have a person that does not know how to process emotions and someone who is emotionally immature. So everything sends them off an emotional cliff. But what happens is, is that ultimately that person ends up suffering to a greater degree of their suffering because they can't process it and they can't see it. You probably already know this, but the average Christian isn't immune to this. We're in the same culture as everyone else. And so every Sunday you make it to church, you battle the urge to pretend and perform, right? right? You want to smile for the camera, <laughs> right, for the highlights. You want to, um, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> you, but ultimately, you pretend you are better than you are, and you perform by just going through the motions. Now, not all of us, Right? We do have good days and great moments, right? But when you're in it, you feel that pressure. You feel that urge to do it. We even give into it sometimes. I've, I've been guilty of this. I can remember when I was going through 
chemotherapy. And I would still want to come to church um, to be a part of the body, be a part of a Sunday morning service. My lip is quivering. Uh, but I, re- and I remember feeling the urge of needing to look strong, like I was handling the process well. As if me crying or being broken down wasn't me handling it well, right? What a lie, right? And in reality, my body was wrecked. It was wrecked. And I was tired. And I was emotionally just drained. And so instead of church being the place where I could process, release, rest, and be strengthened, it ended up taking more out of me. And it wasn't because of the people. It wasn't because people were looking at me weird or, or like they were putting this pressure on me. It, it, it was me. It was my misconceptions. It was my inability to see the problem. It was my inability to process. See, the physical circumstance caused emotional stress. And it began to grow into frustration, irritation, and becoming over sensitive. It was terrible. And it continued to grow like a bad infection until I processed it. See, we, we just saw David process his pain in a very vivid and passionate way. But two important questions. One is, who is David talking to? And two, what does David actually want? Point number four, the plea. So verse 1a says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my plea. Verse 6a reads, I lift my hands to you in prayer. Verse 8 says, let me hear of your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I run to you to hide me. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. So big observation of all these before we jump in. David knows where to go for help, and he knows what he really needs to ask for. So at this point, we see David processing, and now we see that he's processing in the presence of God. See, David isn't pleading to one of his soldiers or to his enemy, but to God. He isn't surrendering to his enemy. Instead, he's surrendering to God. During these times of monumental, paralyzing pain, see, the skeptic says, it's on me to fix it. Or the classic, it is what it is. Because they're alone in it, and they have no access to supernatural hope. So... There is nothing else. But the believer, but David prays and pleads for God to sustain him. There are several things that David demonstrates in his plea. 
And if we go through the text and we break it all out, he lifts his hands. He, let, he, he says, let me hear. He says, show me, rescue me, hide me, teach me, lead me. But for the sake of time, we're only going to focus on three of those things today. And one last thing, quick side note. If you are having trouble on landing on a format of prayer, this is it right here. Here's, an, here's something you can grab easily. All these things that David is asking for, I can safely say we, we need on a daily basis. So if you need it, grab it. All right, first one, show me. David wants to know what to do next. You guys can relate to that. I can relate to that. David needs spiritual discernment. He wants to know, to recognize, to be instructed on the next step he should take. How many of us pray that way? What usually happens is we decide what we want first, and then we ask God to make it so. In other words, we walk before we start praying. Instead, we should be praying before we walk. And we see, we see David doing that here. The next thing David asks for, he says, teach me. David wants to learn how to obey. David wants to be obedient to God's revealed will. David's requests reorients his priorities and focuses on pleasing God instead of self-fulfillment. See, we practice idolatry when we use our prayer to get out of a trial and then put God back in the box so that we can continue to be the lords of our lives and do what we want. Idolaters use their God for their own benefit. But David demonstrates here that followers of God submit to God even through trials. Yeah. Lastly, David asks for, he says, lead me. David doesn't want to do this alone. Yeah. Thankfully for David, he knows better at this point. David is not just asking God to just show the way, but he wants God to lead the way. He wants God to go first. Like a child that doesn't want to go down a dark, dark hallway first or alone. You know, my daughter, even at 13, we have a two-story house, and whenever she turns the light off downstairs, she screams and runs upstairs as fast as she can. <clears throat> and I was like, what are you doing? She was like, I feel like demons are chasing me every time I turn this light off, right? <laughs> I remember one time my wife had found this Instagram video, and it's like, what you feel like when you turn the light off, and they flip the switch, and all these guys in all black start just chasing them, and it's scurrying upstairs until you get to, you know, to get to your room, the light on is safe, you're like, ah, oh, and like the demon flutter. That's what my daughter feels. And, and so whenever there's a light about to be turned off, and we're like, we're leaving a space, and she's the last one, she scurries. She's like, nope, I'm, I'm going with you, right? And so Dave is like, you go first. You show me where to go. You go first. You go with me. David displays the humility needed to follow God's, God's guidance. 
He knows his condition. He's humble enough to know to say, yeah, I, I don't, I can't, I don't want to do this alone. David admits he is no shepherd, but a sheep that needs to be led. David wants the spirit to help his heart follow God's leadership. He acknowledges that God's leadership leads to a firm foundation and that if he is left on his own, he is likely to stray and stumble. Right. See, David shows us that beyond our need of relief from painful moments, in reality, our greater, our, we need God even more. That's what we really need. So when we make the problem bigger than God, we lose, we lose sight of God. But when we make God big, interesting how the problem shrinks. So what do we need to plead when we process our emotional pain? Well, like David showing us, we plead for God to show us, to teach us, and to lead us. It's also important to catch that David's decision to plead wasn't automatic. It was a decision. It was a choice. See, misery either drives us away from something or to something. And in this case, David's misery drove him to God, not away from God, because of what he believed about God. So with every plea we don't make to God, we believe that God can't really help. And with every plea we don't make, we believe that either we can handle it better or we're strong enough. See, with every plea we don't make, we affirm that there is something that we don't believe or can't trust about the character of God. If you want to know if you believe God can handle your problems and your pains, just take a look at your prayer life. Does your prayer life confirm or deny the beliefs you profess with your lips about God. Now, if this is a safe space, and I, I'm sure, I, I believe it is, I want to be honest about something. There was a period of time that I was, uh, that I stopped asking God to cure my incurable form of cancer. I stopped asking him. Because ultimately I believe that God, I guess simply stated, didn't care about it. I think ultimately what it, it would have boiled down to. Like I, didn't, God, I knew God loved me. You know, I, I, there's all these things that I knew. But in this moment, I stopped asking him ultimately because I felt like God just didn't care about this thing. There was other stuff going on. You know, I secretly questioned if God really cared about the pain I was going through. And the struggles that I was having to deal with it because of it. But once I started to process all of this through prayer, realized two things. One, <laughs> I still want to be healed. Um, but more importantly, I just really needed more of God. And so as we begin to close, and we've seen with David's problem, We've seen his problem. We've seen his pain. We've seen his plea. But what does David ultimately find hope in? What anchors 
his plea to deal with his problem and his pain. Last point, the promise. Verse 1b says, answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Verse 5 says, I remember the days of old. I ponder all your great works and think about what you have done. The main observation here is this. What What David believed about God determined his response. What David believed about God determined his response. See, David did not plea in his own faith, but in the faithfulness of God and his promises. See, if you're going to restate verse 1b, it, it would say, answer me according to your faithful promises. I need, I need David needed God's faithfulness because in, internally he knew he, he's not, he hasn't been faithful, and he could never be perfectly faithful. If we wanted God to answer him on our faithfulness, it would be tragic. It would be tragic. Some of the things we try, try to be faithful to are easy on paper, but then you try to do it. We can't be faithful to a diet to a, a routine to go to sleep on time, a routine to not look at our phones at certain times of the day, right? A routine not to cuss, a routine not to badmouth our kid, or a routine to, uh, you know, not aggravate our spouse. As much as we want to be faithful in these things, at the end of the day, it doesn't happen. And David knew this. And so that way when David asked and he pleaded and he prayed. It's like, God, I need, this, I need this to be done because of your faithfulness, not mine. Now, if you read a portion of Psalm 89, you will see that God made these gracious promises to David. And now in 143, he pleads that God would remember and accomplish those promises on his behalf. To put it simply, God's promises impact and drive David's prayer. He clings to the promises like a child and their favorite blanket or toy. David meditates on them. David, David meditates on the story of creation. The times when the Lord appeared for his people. In his younger days, when the Lord delivered him from the lion, the bear, and Goliath, and all of his victorious battles. See, just like David's harp would chase away the evil from King Saul when he couldn't sleep, here David chases away his own fears by looking back at God's faithfulness. See, David shows us that his plea was anchored not only in the promises of God, but the history of God's faithfulness. This morning, can we answer the question, what is our plea anchored in? See, just like David, we look back to God's work in our lives 
while hoping for a better future. God's promise to David and God's promise to us is ultimately the same promise, that God would be our God and that we would be his people. And just like David, how David finds hope in the promise because he saw it being fulfilled in the works of God, we find hope today in this promise because it was fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. Looking back at everything God has done for humanity, one, and for you personally, it's, it's hard not to acknowledge. David reminds us the beauty and the power of remembering what has been done. Why? Because our hope isn't, it's not blind. Our faith isn't blind. There, there was a moment of history where something's done where we can look back and ponder and remember, especially during those feelings of emotional pain. And as we process and we look for answers and we look for hope, we're not just throwing it up in the sky, but we're, we're anchoring it to something that is firm. Yeah. <laughs> so the obvious question is, well, how do we become God's people? Simply stated, it's through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's believing that despite deserving God's wrath because of our sin, God himself, in love, sent his perfect son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin. And he canceled it on the cross. He took the penalty and power from him. In doing so, now, through our faith, we can be reconciled back to God. And not only that, but Jesus' resurrection also conquered death for once and all. See, our faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection anchors our hope that one day he will make all things new. That one day there will be a culmination of a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness where sin, problem, and pain don't exist. And where David and God's people desire is finally fulfilled. The thing we need most, the forever presence of God. Let us worship together. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. 
Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.